Good morning, church. All right, y'all are up and at them. It must be that extra hour of sleep y'all got. That is awesome. Um, my name is Stephen Pollitt. I'm the discipleship pastor here at Gateway. Blake and Sean um, are out this week. They're on vacation, and, and so y'all can be praying for them. And typically when I fill in for Blake, um, you know, I, we didn't used to, to live stream, but we would post the sermon you know, a few days later in the week, so anybody who wasn't here could go back and, and watch it. But I got a text from Blake a, a few minutes ago to let me know that he's watching right now. So it, it, there's, there's a whole new level of nerves right now because I know the boss man is staring at me right there in that camera. Um, but if y'all have his, his phone number, you can text him, say you miss him this morning. Um, they'll be back with us next week. But it is a pleasure and an honor um, to be able to bring God's Word to y'all this morning. I'm so thankful to be able to be going through the study that we're going through, to be, to be making our way through James. And so if you have your Bibles, um, you can open up to uh, James 2. And so we're going to be in verses 1 through 13. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take this verse by verse, and we're just going to tear this apart. One thing that I love about James, and something that y'all need to know, is that a lot of letters in the, the New Testament are written to specific churches that are facing different challenges. And whoever the author is, whether it's Paul or, or whoever it is, is addressing some of those challenges. James is a little bit different where he is addressing the early church as a whole. These are challenges and issues, difficulties that the church as a culture is facing. And so I, I, I love diving into James because we can also see how the culture of us as believers, what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to behave, how we're supposed to respond to who Jesus is, is a cultural thing. And that we can change the culture that we, we are facing with who Jesus Christ is, with the things that we say, and with the things that we do. And that's what we find out in James. And so we're going to dive into to this a, a little bit. Um, and so again, what we're going to be, be looking at is um, just the sin of being partial to others or, or being judgmental. And so there's five things, if you have your, your electronic bulletin, there's five things in the sermon notes that we're going to dive into what, it, what happens when we are judgmental or what happens when we show partial, uh, partiality to one person over another. And so we see that it's evil. Um, we see that it's wrong. And what I mean by wrong is that there's no way for us to justify that behavior. The, the, there's no um, end result that comes out of being judgmental that says, well, I did this for the greater good. The, there's, the, it, it's just flat wrong. Um, it's disobedient. It is a sin to, 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 to be judgmental. It's a sin to show partiality. It's catastrophic, not only to our faith, but to the faith of others. And the last thing that we see is that it's a thief of, of dignity. And so we're going to dive through these things. And I, and I think it's important for us to go through this. When I was thinking of, I, I was so, um, as I was writing the sermon and, and I was seeking the Lord of what, what to say and how we're supposed to, to really dive into this text, I was so thankful because we have a church that, that I've noticed is so healthy. Um, that there, there's isolated incidents where we deal with being judgmental and things like that. I was a youth pastor for 16 years. I dealt with snobs unlike anybody's ever seen before being in youth ministry that long. And that we've all um, ha have faced uh, the, the challenges that come uh, with, with dealing with people that are snobs or some of us have been snobs ourselves in, in different times and situations. And what I want to dive into today is that God is looking and watching and, and he's wanting us to show the love of Christ through the things that we say and things that we do to others, no matter what they look like, 
no matter their political affiliation, no matter the color of their skin, no matter their upbringing or their, their socioeconomic status, that he has a seat at the table for all of us. And so we're going to dive in uh, to, to that a little bit today. And so what I want to share is a little bit, so I, I've been a snob in my life before. Raise your hands if you, you're snobby about certain things. Like my wife, she's a little bit of a food snob, but it's not the way you think. Like she doesn't want to go to fine dining restaurants. She just loves Mexican food. So it's like, and it's on the border is her favorite. So like you wouldn't think that'd be a snob, but any other Mexican food doesn't suffice. It's got to be on the border. Myself, I, I'm a orange juice snob. Like I love orange juice and it has to be really, really good orange juice, like fresh squeezed. Anything else just doesn't suffice. And when I was a kid, Growing up, there was a brand of orange juice that I don't think they have anymore, but it's called Donald Duck Orange Juice. Anybody remember Donald Duck Orange Juice? It is the best. It tastes so good. It's really sweet. And my family, you know, I grew up from very humble beginnings. There was no reason for me to be snobby about anything. I grew up um, as a young kid, about as poor as you could grow up. Um, but I had developed a taste for high-quality noble orange juice, such as Donald Duck orange juice. And when you look at the word snob, what you all don't, might not know, but the origins of that word snob, what it means is lack of nobility. And so really what snob is, is we have a false sense of nobility. We put forward a fake noble behavior. It is a lack of nobility. So my, my orange juice snobbiness came from a total fake place. It wasn't because we could afford the most expensive orange juice in the world. It's just, I, I liked it. I liked it. And so my grandfather, when I was in high school, finally caved because what we would do is we would buy the concentrated 10 cent a can frozen orange juice and you mix it with water. And that was the orange juice. And that orange juice isn't good enough for Stephen. You know, I'm of, of noble background. I must have the best orange juice. It wasn't good enough for me. I had to have Donald Duck orange juice. And one time when I was in high school, my grandfather finally caved and he bought us Donald Duck orange juice. It was delicious. It was the best thing I ever tasted. And one thing that you have to know about the Pollitt house is when we do breakfast, we do breakfast right. We're breakfast snobs. And so what I mean by that is there's no scrambled eggs. We fry the eggs. For those of y'all that, that are, are peasants and you scramble your eggs... You know, I'm, I'm sorry you had to grow up that way, but we fry our eggs. We have a stack of biscuits. We do gravy. We have grits. We don't just do toast and oatmeal. We do breakfast the right way. And so I would, my plate would be covered with eggs and bacon and sausage, and we'd have country ham, and we would have um, fried bologna for those of y'all with very expensive taste. Um, it was... It, it was my favorite thing. And then what the Pollots would do, and Natalie had to adjust to this, is we would eat breakfast and then we wouldn't eat again until dinner time because we consumed so much breakfast that we wouldn't be hungry. And so my wife had to adjust to that, that the Pollots, we grew up eating two meals a day. You know, lunch was just a, a snack. Um, and I would have my plate fixed up with all my grits and with my gravy and my biscuits and, and all four types of meat that we would fix up. And I would have a glass of milk, and I would have a glass of orange juice. And I remember when my grandfather bought Donald Duck orange juice, I would drink this orange juice, and I would look at him and be like, thank you so much for buying the good stuff. This is so much better than, than the concentrated things that we typically buy. This is better than what you used to get us. So it became an orange juice snob. One thing that I didn't notice is after months and months and months of him buying 
Donald Duck orange juice, I started to notice it was the same container. Like this container is starting to look a little dingy. And I would still brag to him. I look at him, I was like, Papa, this, this orange juice is the best. You, you've done such a, a great thing for our family by providing Donald Duck orange juice for us. And he would just have a little smirk on his face. And what I found out was um, he did buy Donald Duck, Donald Duck orange juice one time. And then he would go buy the concentrated orange juice, and he would mix it up, and he would pour it in the Donald Duck container. And for months and months and months, I was bragging about how this is the best orange juice you've ever tasted in your life. And see, that's what a, what a snob is, is they have fake nobility. And that's what I was, was expressing to my grandfather. It, it wasn't what was in the container that counted to me. It was the container itself. And that's what happens when, when we show partiality, when we're snobs, when we look down on others the way that God has created them, but we still look down on them, is, is that we, we are expressing fake nobility. And again, like I said, there's, there's five things that happen with this fake nobility. We have to understand that it's evil. It's wrong. It's disobedient. It's catastrophic to our faith. And it is a thief of dignity. And so again, being a youth pastor, I experienced this on a level with, with teenagers um, on a daily basis. And I know Taylor's back there, and he gets to experience it a lot. But now I've been in adult ministry for a few years as well. And what I've come to find out is, you know, th there are, are snobs as teenagers, and there are snobs um, who are full-grown adults. And the difference is, is just teenagers are honest about it. And we tend to kind of put on a, a mask. We tend to not be quite as honest about how we truly feel about others or how um, we, we look down uh, on others. But so we're going to look at this chapter in James, and we're going to dive into this. And what we're going to see is that this was a challenge in the early church. This was a challenge in the culture that, that the early Christians came from in their, their Jewish and Hebrew backgrounds. It was something that they faced. And what James didn't want, he goes, I don't, there is no place for this behavior in Christianity. So he addresses it. It's a challenge that we face over and over and over again. And we're going to dive in to, again, these five things. So if you have your Bibles, open it up to James 1, or James 2, uh, verse 1. It says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So here's the thing that we have to understand is that we can't look down on others and say that you're not a believer based on what you believe politically. We can't um, look down on others and say you're, you're not a believer or you're not as good a believer because of the color of your skin. We can't do that based on, on how they grew up or the funds that they have. We have to understand that we can show no partiality. And what James is doing is he's establishing something that was put forth in the culture before he was ever there. Again, he is saying this has no place in the Christian faith. This has no place among our assembly. This has no place amongst the, those who follow Jesus Christ. Because if you authentically know who Jesus is and what he did on the cross and how you were forgiven, you would understand that that same grace and mercy is extended on to others as well. So that behavior has no place amongst believers. You know, as believers, we're equipped for different things. Um, some of us have, have, are, are blessed with more finances than others, and, and hopefully 
Um, you're using those things to, to further steward the kingdom. Some of us, we don't have as much money as others, but we do have time, so we give our time and effort and energy to the faith. And what Christianity is, is understanding that the classes and things that are going on in our culture, that those things are always going to exist, and they are there based off of freedom. But what we cannot do is look down on anybody else based on the differences that God has created in us. And so this is the first thing that you have to really understand what James is really attacking is that if, if God is sovereign and he's in control of all things, that means he created all of us uniquely for his purpose. And so if those purposes are, are, are covered in who God is and the sovereignty of who he is, all it does when we look down on others is, is it shows the evilness. Because what we're saying is God created you, but you're still not good enough in my eyes. God created you, but you're still not good enough. You didn't come from where you should have come from. You don't say and do the things that you should say. And so it establishes um, this, this ideology that there's no place at the table for you. And James is battling that up front. And so not only is he trying to make sure our Christian faith doesn't succumb to that kind of behavior, but he is challenging a culture that every single one of them had come from of where you're supposed to look down on others. There is a certain seat in the tabernacle, in the temple for those that have, and there's a certain place to stand for those that had not. They established a culture of, ju of being judgmental. And James is saying there's no place in that for Christianity. And that's something we have to continue to fight against in our, ourselves personally, but it's something that we also have to continue to fight against culturally as a, a, a culture of who our church is. Because we're in this together. The thing that you have to understand is what Christianity is, is a family. You're my brothers and you're my sisters in Christ. It is a family. And what does family do? They include you had the opportunity a few weeks ago um, to pray with somebody and had the blessing of leading them to Christ. It was an amazing conversation. But part of that conversation is included. They'd never stepped foot inside a church because they were worried about being judged. And some of that is these, these false views on what we think church is, but a lot of it is also is the examples that they've had laid before them. But they feel that there's no seed in this place for them because of how they're going to be viewed by the family. And what family does is we include. We even include the crazy aunts and uncles at, at Thanksgiving and Christmas. We're inclusive. Some of y'all, and myself included, might be the crazy uncle and aunt. But we're still included, and we still have a seat at the table. In verse 2 and 3, it says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, You sit here in the good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down at my feet. So again, James is looking at the content of who people are understanding that all of us are in need of mercy and grace. And yes, we are created uniquely, and there are differences among us, and that comes with being free, but all of us have a seat at the table. And so this is where I want you to look inward, is with your behavior, with the things that you say, with the things that you do, are you opening up that seat next to you at the table for somebody who doesn't know who Jesus Christ is? 
Or are we telling them with the things that we say or even the things that we don't say, there's no place for you at this table. You either stand over here or you sit at my feet. And here's the thing, that can manifest itself in many different ways, especially in church culture. One of the things that I've seen in, in, in my entire adult life, I have been serving inside a church. And where I see this played out the most is in the, the, the different ministries that, that churches have. And always looking at whatever ministry you have is more important than whatever ministry somebody else is doing. What that does is it closes off the seat at the table. If we're looking down on somebody because of the color of their skin, what that does is it closes off the seat at the table. And what God is saying is there's a seat for all of us. There's nobody standing over there in the place where, where we think you're supposed to be. There's a seat at the table for all of us. Again, there's going to be classes. There's going to be different um, socioeconomic places that we come from. There's going to be different races. People are going to dress different. People are going to look different than what we might think is normal. But what we do as believers is make sure through our attitude and through our faith that we make sure everybody knows there's a seat at the table for them. There's a seat at the table no matter what your political opinions are. There's a seat at the table no matter what background you come from. There is a seat at the table. And here's the other side of this. Is as as we're, we're looking at this text, and it's really about how we judge others, but another huge challenge that we face in, in, in our faith, even as Christians, is that we tell ourselves that we're not good enough for that seat. We convince ourselves, we're judgmental towards ourselves, saying the things that I've done, the things that I've said. The individual that I had the opportunity to pray with and lead to Christ uh, recently, there's a big challenge that they had that they felt like they weren't good enough. And I had to just tell them that you're not. But that's what Jesus is for. That's what Jesus is for. So James is challenging something that's common in his culture, and he changes the culture. Christianity becomes the world's fastest and largest religion shortly after this and has maintained that place for 2,000 years. But it continues to be a threat, not to God, but to the church. In verse 4, if I can find it here, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So again, it's the first thing. What we do when we, we, we have this sin of partiality in our life, when we become judgmental, we have to understand that that is evil. God calls it evil in verse 4. And so being a snob and being judgmental is an evil thing. And so whenever I snub somebody, what we do, or whenever you snub somebody or you become a snob or you judge somebody, what you do is you take on a role that is supposed to be secured for God himself, that you become judge, right? And what we bring to that position when we remove God from that place and we set in that role, what we start to do is we bring uh, this standard that God doesn't approve of. So not only do we take a job that doesn't belong to us, we bring a standard to that job that God says doesn't belong there. Because what God does when he sits on that throne as judge, he brings grace and mercy. When we sit on that throne as judge, we bring evil behavior. We steal people's dignity. 
we're disobedient not only to God, but to those around us. So I'm going to say that one more time. It's like whenever we snub someone, we put ourselves in the seat of judge and we bring a standard that God doesn't approve. We bring a standard that God doesn't approve. So again, what we have to understand is our worth is not wrapped up in the things that we have or in the things that we don't have. Our worth is wrapped up fully in who our daddy is. Our worth is wrapped up fully in who our father is and what he did for us. And what he's calling us to do is to not judge the container, but to look at the contents. Look at the contents. And here's the deal. All of us. We come from backgrounds where we have sinned, we have stolen, we destroy everything we come in contact with until we meet the righteous judge who extends grace and mercy. And he removes those things and instills love. So again, what happens when we look down on others is we take a job that belongs to God and we bring a standard that he doesn't approve of. And in verses 5 through 7, it says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you in to court? So the next thing that we're going to look at is that, that being judgmental and showing partiality is wrong. And the reason why it's wrong is there's, there's no place for us to justify why we did that. There's no place to justify why we look down on other people. And the thing that we find out in these few um, verses here is that we have to understand that God has created us all different. Like I said before, that, that some of us are, are gifted and blessed with the ability to be able to fund ministry and to do some unique things. Some of us are blessed and, and, and are uniquely created to be able to teach and preach God's word. Some of us are able to, to lead those to Christ that don't know who he is, unlike anybody else we've ever seen. That we are all gifted, uniquely, and different. But those differences don't cause us to judge one another. Those differences don't cause us to look down on whoever's ministry that we're not a part of. What it does is it causes us to be inclusive and saying there's a seat at the table for all of us. So the big question for Christians, because it's easy to fall into this behavior, I'm guilty of it as well, but why do we want to be the oppressor when we know something so much better? Why do we want to be the oppressor when we know what freedom actually feels like? Again, that, that place as judge is not for us because we don't bring the standard that God brings. In verse 8, says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and in so 
you are doing well. So the third thing that we understand is that showing partiality and being judgmental and looking down on others, it is disobedient. That doesn't fulfill the law. There's only one thing that fulfills the law, and that's love, and that's the love that can only come from Jesus Christ. Again, it says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and in so you are doing well. You're doing well. It doesn't say you'll never fall. It doesn't say you'll never stumble. What it's calling you to do is how we fulfill the law is how we love God and love others. And in that, there lies when we choose to judge others, when we choose to look down on others, we see that it's disobedient. Because how do we fulfill the law? Through love. How we treat others. How we show the love of Christ to others. We cannot fulfill the law by taking on the role of judge and in turn passing judgment that God wouldn't pass himself. We fulfill the law through the way that we love. And it's disobedient to do anything else. To hate somebody because of the things they believe. To hate someone by the things that they've done in the past. To hate someone because the way they look is disobedient. Because the only thing that fulfills the law is love itself. Verses 9 and 10 it says, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and you are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. I love this, this section of Scripture because what it starts to do is it starts to, to let believers know that there are not some things that you can, can, can keep the law. There's not the, the convenient things um, that we like about the law. And we keep those, but there's things that we don't like, so we don't keep those. That, that in turn, we commit sin against all the law. And so there's only one way to receive mercy and grace. To put our faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for each and every one of those transgressions. I love these two verses because what it does is it, again, establishes what our role is in this faith. It establishes how we're called to behave. And that if we have judgment in our heart, then we break all the law. And if we break all the law, we have a desperate need for salvation. As I look at myself in the mirror, I need extremely thick glasses and my hair starting to thin and my, my beard is almost completely gray now. I have not found the secret to conquer death. Death is going to be upon me one day. And as I look around this room, the lights are a little bright. I see some gray hairs and some glasses, and I see a lot of you haven't found the secret to conquer death as well. It is coming for each and every one of us. And it is coming for a lot of people that are outside these four walls who don't know who Jesus Christ is. But I have a secret. The conqueror of death who gives us eternal life, is Jesus Christ who died on that cross for us and he sits on that judgment seat and instead of judgment, he extends to us grace and mercy. And so verses 9 and 10, we establish that that's what we're supposed to extend as well. None of us are perfect. And if none of us are perfect, there's no reason for us to ever be snobs. There's no reason for us 
to ever be judgmental because there's always something somebody can judge about me. But who conquers death? Jesus Christ on the cross. He extends grace and mercy to me, therefore I have everlasting life. Death has no hold on me and it has no hold on you who are believers in Jesus Christ. So again, I, I love this text because not only does it, it point out that we're not to judge others, but it forces us that, that, that I have some major, major insecurities when it comes to my faith. I have major insecurities when it comes to who I am. But you know who gets rid of those insecurities? Jesus Christ. And he says, Stephen, you're, you're good enough because you have my righteousness. You're good enough because you know who I am. And so whether you're judgmental towards somebody else or whether you're judgmental towards yourself, know that that is a place reserved for God. And he wants to extend grace and mercy, not judgment. In verse 11, For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So again, as a, I, I, through this entire sermon, I got to refer back to my um, years and years and years as a youth pastor. One of my favorite things as a youth pastor is I would have students come into my office all the time, and they would be mad, and they'd come and slam themselves down in the chair and be like, what's wrong? They're like, I'm mad at my mom and dad. They're, they, they're grounded me because I didn't clean my room or because I didn't study enough. And, you know, they should be happy that I don't do drugs. And then I would just look at them and smile. And I was like, it's such a representation of, of, of our behavior and who God really is and what really happens with, with, with our sin. No matter how little the sin is that we think we commit or how big the sin is that we think we commit, what we've done is we have sinned against the entire law. And if all of us have sinned against the entire law, we have a desperate need for the one that can fulfill the law. And how does he fulfill that law? Through love, through mercy, and through grace. He sets the example for how we're supposed to respond to others. He said, I, I love that argument every time a teenager came in. Like, I'm mad because they made me clean my room. I'm mad because I had to clean out my car. You know, they should be I should be able to have a dirty room because I don't do drugs and I don't go out and party and I don't do this. From young ages, we establish in our own mind what is right and wrong because we, at a young age, put ourselves in the seat of judge and we bring a standard that doesn't belong. So let's leave that for God. There's too much pressure in that seat. You know, it's funny when I talk about we establish that as a, as a young age. I see that in my boys. I have five-year-old twins that, you know, I'll tell them three times. be like, if I have to tell you again to pick up your toys, you're going to go to timeout. But, Dad, at least I eat my green beans. The thing that you have to realize is what sin does is it, 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 it's a sin against all the law. There's no room for judgment because each and every one of us has broken all of the law. And all of us have a desperate need for Jesus Christ. The next thing that we see is that, that when we show partiality and when we show judgment, that is, it is catastrophic. 
um, to our faith. And we see that in verses 12 and 13. It says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I love that. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Here's what that means. Me as a believer, I have faith in Jesus Christ. How do I know that's real? I'm not perfect, but I'm changed from when I became a believer. I know that's real because of the things that I've seen in my life as a believer. I know it's real because I'm a different person than who I used to be. My faith is real. And what we see in 13 is that mercy triumphs over judgment. What we're going to be able to see one day, like I said, none of us escape death. But the thing that is in store for us is we will not sit in judgment to God. We will sit in front of God and he will not judge us for the works or the things that we we failed to do or the things that we did. We will face him and he will extend mercy and grace and he will say, well done, my faithful servant. And eternity with him will be established for each and every one of us. Those that have to face judgment are those that cast judgment onto other people. Being judgmental is catastrophic to our faith because all of us can have a belief system. We can understand with the knowledge of who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross, but if we don't have love, we don't truly know who he is. So it's catastrophic in two ways. We might be secure in the the belief system that we've established in who Jesus Christ is, but we don't live out who Jesus Christ is. That could be catastrophic to your faith because you might not be a believer if you don't show love. We see that in this text. A belief system doesn't save you. Your full faith in who Jesus Christ is does. And so we'll never have to sit in judgment as believers. We get to feel the fullness of his mercy and his grace, as it says in verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. It is also catastrophic to those who don't know who Jesus Christ is. If we're showing example of of hate and judgmental behavior and partiality, and we have people who are not believers that see that behavior, but they don't see the way that we love, it is catastrophic to their faith because we've set an example that doesn't belong. Again, we've become a judge and we bring a standard that God doesn't approve of. And that turns people off of the Christian faith. but we love them. We extend grace and mercy and let them know where that grace and mercy comes from. So again, I've wrestled with this text for a couple weeks now. The thing that I, I love about James is also the thing that's hard to preach from James is that it's very basic. It's not a whole lot of deep theology that comes, especially in these 13 verses. It's just right out there, black and white for us. Don't judge. Don't have partiality. But open up a seat at the table for everyone you come in contact with. And the only way that they can fully experience grace and mercy is knowing who Jesus Christ is and what he's done on the cross. So there's two things that should happen in a response to God's word today. Number one, if we have judgment in our heart, 
and we have prejudice in our heart, it is time for us to give that to God. It is time for us to remove the, the, the seat that we're sitting in, the judgment seat, bringing a standard that God doesn't approve of. It is time for us to move out of that seat, put God there so that he can extend mercy and grace through you and to you. That's two things he's wanting you to do today in response to these 13 verses. He wants to extend mercy and grace to you and through you. Are you going to allow that to happen this morning? Are you going to leave here this morning understanding that God is wanting to do a great work in you? No matter what background you have, no matter what you look like, he wants to be in that seat so he can bring the healthy standard. And that's grace and that's mercy. And so we have a benefit of doing something amazing this morning. If you, you're, you're in your seats, uh, we're going to, to take communion. There's, there's no better way to respond to putting God in the proper judgment seat than, than, than analyzing ourselves. So I'm going to ask the praise team to go ahead and, and, and come on up. They're going to play. And we're going to, to, to participate in the Eucharist. We're going to participate in the Lord's Supper. But what I want you to do before we take these elements, and those of you at home, I hope you, you have your elements as well. What we're going to do is analyze our heart to make sure we're not in that judgment seat. To seek God that every single day that we extend grace and mercy, we allow Him to extend it to us, and we allow Him to extend it through us as well. And that can only come through knowing who Jesus Christ is. If anybody in this room, if you are not a believer, and this morning uh, you, you feel God tugging on your heart, I want to welcome you to sit at the table. To sit at the table with us this morning. There's no need for you to stand to the side. There's no need for you to feel like you don't belong. If you're at home and you're not a believer, but you've become a believer this morning because of this message of grace and mercy, I pray that you'll go get the elements because I want you to sit at the table. There's a space for you right next to me. And so as we get our, our elements... Take the bread. And this bread is our Savior's body, torn and broken, so that I might experience grace and mercy and that those around me can experience grace and mercy through me. I understand why his body was broken and torn. Lord, as we, we come to you to, to, to take the Lord's Supper, Lord, I thank you for giving yourself as a sacrifice, expending, uh, extending grace and mercy to all of us, making sure we show no partiality, but we see your people as you've called us to see them, through your people, your children, our brothers and sisters. Lord, I pray that as we take the Lord's Supper, we analyze our heart we remove ourselves from the judgment seat and we give that to you so that we can experience grace and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.